0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grand Thornton's financial services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. The topic we'll be discussing today is one of particular importance for the investment management industry, because it introduces a complete overhaul of how prudential rules work for investment firms. In brief, the UK investment firm prudential regime aims to create a single, proportionate regime that reflects firm size and business, while at the same time focusing the prudential requirements on the potential harm to consumers, clients and the market. Whilst very technical in its nature, it is a subject that gives a lot of room for interpretation and makes for some really interesting hypotheses before the final FCA consultation paper arrives later in the year. To explore latest developments and key aspects of the regime, in today's episode, I'm joined by two exceptional guests who live and breathe regulations, and if you ever had a question on any of the points we'll be covering today, they have all the answers, also the legend goes. It is my pleasure to first welcome Colm Donnelly from Invesco UK. Colm oversees capital adequacy at Invesco and was described to me as one of the most knowledgeable people in industry on that matter. And that's no surprise, as Colm brings a plethora of experience, having worked in financial services for over 10 years as a former prudential regulator and later in a large consulting firm before joining Invesco in 2019. At Investco Comms is responsible for potential reporting for the EMEA region, covering entities under MIFID, AFMD, UCEDS, and Solvency T regime. Welcome to the podcast, Colm.
1: Hi, Irina. Thanks for having me.
0: We are also joined by David Morey, who is a Partner and Head of Investment Management at Grand Thornton UK. David has 30 years experience in risk and regulatory compliance, within investment and fund management, having spent over 10 years in industry and senior risk and regulatory roles. David has specialist expertise in a wide range of conduct matters and has also been active over many years in client asset and client money issues and investment firm prudential requirements. Hi, David, and thank you for being with us today.
2: Hi, Irina. Good to see you again.
0: Now, despite this impressive CVs, you've all heard about, If you thought we would be sticking only to the relatively dry world of regulatory requirements within investment management, fear not. I'm keen to explore some other extraordinary experiences our guests bring to us. Korn, for example, tells me that he has worked as a barman at a popular golf resort during college, which led him to serving pints of Guinness to many celebrities, including Matt Damon, Michael Jordan, as well as all the top names in the golf. Meanwhile, David has apparently just signed up for a degree in military history, and during lockdown has been building enormous military ships, which he likes to show as a background to his video course. So expect celebrity talk and military jokes. Well, I guess not a better place to start with, but we ask Colm, what hobby did you sign up for during lockdown, Colm?
1: Probably less of a hobby but uh, my wife and I have instead decided to double the size of our family by getting a dog as well as uh, uh, recently uh, had a daughter four months ago so the, the house went from pretty quiet just the two of us to now being a little bit more chaotic so probably not a hobby but definitely keeping us busy.
0: More than a Lego building ships then.
1: I
2: was going to say, was, was, was the new investment firm's prudential regime not enough complexity for you? That <laughs> a...
1: No, I needed a hand. So.
0: <laughs> and David, did you really sign up for this military history degree and why?
1: Well,
2: you know, it's, it is a classic, um, I, I will regret it after lockdown um, when I'm having to do the homework. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Masters in, in Naval Warfare, uh, um yeah, well, no. Uh, well, I suppose the, the 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 correct answer, the official answer, should be that you know, military history, it, it, tremendous focus of, of of human and technological resources tends to lead to technical and societal developments. Makes it fascinating area to study. Um, I think the truth is, I just like things that go bang. So uh, <laughs> that's that's why I'm into it.
0: You're not planning a change of career then? So for, for the loss of the investment management industry?
2: Uh, well. Full-time building Lego battleships. Uh, yeah, uh, I'll, 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 it's, uh, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it.
0: OK, on that note, I think we'd better go back to the topic of the discussion today. And and maybe invite David, starting with him, um, to, to tell us a little bit more about the regime, um, who is impacted by it, and what are the key timelines associated with it? David?
2: Yeah, I guess this is my attempt at a really short, sharp, summary, because um, I'm I'm sure we'll get into some of the, the more detailed points as we go on. But the quick summary will be, you, you're right, it is called the Investment Firms Prudential Regime. I said Colm and myself will abbreviate that to IFBR or, or MIFID-PRU, which is the name of the regulatory handbook um, that's, uh, that's going to contain these new rules. Similar to the um, European Union's Investment Firms Directive and Regulation, but not, and I think Brexit plays a role in not identical to that regime. You might pick out some of the differences uh, as we go. Um, basically, IFPR applies to any type of um, regulated firm that undertakes MIFID activity and which, it, which is not a bank or an insurer. Uh, by MIFID activities, I mean investment activities covered by the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive. Basically, that means investment managers, brokers, trading firms, investment advisors that aren't what we'd call MIFID exempt. Um, Another way of looking at it and using some other jargon, if, if, if you currently follow BIPRU in calculating your capital, then you're going to be moving to IFPR. If you follow IFPRU, then you're going to be moving to IFPR. If you're an exempt CAD firm, then you're going to be moved to IFPR. As you said at the you know it's essentially collapsing several legacy prudential regimes and replacing them with one. Um, uh, it's doing that on a time frame, which, which means that firms in the UK will have to comply from 1st of January 2022. For most of I I mean the first time you report, and, and, and there will be new new style regulatory returns to complete. The first time you report your new capital numbers under RFBR will be the end of Q1 2022, so April 2022. Um, that's actually different to the EU where their rules, their version comes into force this month, at the end of this month. So they're six months ahead. Um, and in terms of what is changing, I, I mean, the, the, the three headline grabbing things I think I'll throw out there is one. Um, Firms are going to have to do K factor calculations um, and that's taking certain, there's there's a number of them, volume metrics from your business and applying a percentage to generate a capital requirement. Um, So, so gone are the the legacy methods of looking at your balance sheet and and applying a percentage to come up with the capital requirement to some of some some of the things in your balance sheet, and and those are being replaced by percentages. These K factors, that is the percentage, are being applied to the volume of your activity. Um, And this is completely new mandatory liquid resources requirement for the first time. So it's not that difficult to calculate. Uh, You know, it's a third of your fixed overhead requirement, which is in turn 25% of your um, uh, annual expenditure. So so it's fairly simple to calculate, but I think the the big thing is it's up to this point, um, firms have had to meet their capital requirement by having retained reserves, um, share capital, on their balance sheet. Moving forward they will at least in part have to have some of that in cash, liquid, cash, liquid resources or cash or near cash. Um, I think the third thing I would throw out as a sort of headline change is that um, in addition to these calculations around capital and liquidity you're also going to need to do a, a self-assessment of whether you should hold more capital or whether you should hold more liquid liquid resources. Um, that's the pillar two for, for the buy-proof and if-proof firms will, will know and love. Um, is going to be it's going to be analysed and produced in a slightly different way. Um, also the ICAP, the document that used to be produced annually to, 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 to present all this self-assessment um, is is going and is being replaced by something called the ICAV or the internal capital Adequacy and risk assessment document. Say. Um, so I think it's kind of headline changes those are the three things I'll pull out but, but believe me there's a lot of, lot of detail in those areas and, uh, and more beyond that.
0: I don't doubt that and and so it sounds certainly like a lot of fundamental changes so I guess calm turning to you I can imagine this has been quite a hot topic <laughs> amongst your colleagues on the market and the max peers and um, how, how do you think the industry um, received the, the, the proposed changes
1: yeah I think generally positive so obviously it depends on your business model and what existing regime currently applies to you but for a large number of firms they were previously subject to a regime that was largely kind of unashamedly built for banks Um, and therefore there were some kind of oddities such as the the pillar one calculations which were primarily designed for kind of on balance sheet activity and didn't really cater for Agency type businesses, such as asset managers, where um a lot of the activity would be, would would be happening elsewhere. So it has been pro- probably clear for a long time that a regime that was a bit of a better fit for investment firms was required. So, in that respect, um it it was pretty welcome that um it it was finally coming in. That said, of course, I, I sit on the investment associations prudential working group for for the new regime that's coming in, and obviously, as with any new body of regulation, there has been plenty of different challenges as well. So some opportunities that that come with uh, come with with new regulation uh, coming in. So I'm sure we will be unpicking those.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's it's certainly a step in the right direction there in terms of um, or from a regulatory point of view. So. You, you said you just mentioned that you're sitting on um, the investment association um group would you do you have views for example how prepared are the rest of the market players for the regime um given the approaching implementation deadlines as david mentioned earlier first of january 2022
1: yeah i think it's pretty mixed overall so i've seen some some surveys recently that show pretty wide range in terms of readiness with with some saying they're they are at the final stages of the project and are close to to being ready to to go live versus others that have are just kind of really beginning and in, in many respects let's say that is fairly res- expected as i think the the landscape of investment firms is very broad per, perhaps uh versus what, what you'd kind of expect when new regimes were coming into into place for say banks or insurers. So you, you have firms that differ massively in size co- coming in, um, which obviously gives a different per- picture in terms of the resources that can be thrown at yet another regulatory change pro- project. And then you also have hugely varying starting points with some firms are transitioning from the old Basel regimes, which have many of the same principles and frameworks as the new regime versus some firms that were previously subject to not as much prudential regulation. So a lot of things are kind of new and are are there for the first time. And lastly, probably the the diversity of actual business models in in the investment firm space is is a lot more uh, than you would perhaps see, uh, see in the bank and our insurance base. So you have everything from a traditional asset manager to proprietary trading firms, to even s- some smaller investment banks. So even when you get into the regime, there can almost be regimes within the regime because you will have a, a, a different selection of K factors that will be most material to you. And that that can bring, bring a lot of differences and a lot of challenges as well.
0: Certainly sounds like this. And and David, I know that we, we have a lot of activity in that space and, and we've been um, sold, if you like, for to help a number of firms with um, implementation of the regime, but you with your whole market view, if you like, what, what do you think is the state of readiness across the across the board?
2: Uh, I'd, I'd absolutely echo con's observations. I mean I, I guess I would say um uh, entities with European Union subsidiaries so they're they're being captured by the EU rules now this month um tend, tend to be ahead they've they had to do more work particularly on the k factors um that's, that's obviously a good thing for their uk implementation although um they're probably looking at a situation where they're gonna have to run two systems for calculating k factors although because although they might they might be saying name the same thing, there are some some differences in. In, in like i've mentioned those volume activity volume levels that get get included you know the the, the actual technical definitions of what goes into each k factor um, are, are quite uh quite complicated and do vary uh, slightly between the EU and the uk so um uh, in a number of cases so so yes uh, eu and ent- those are the EU entities ent- 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 ahead but uh it's not a simple drag and drop operation for them um yeah i, I think uh, uh i th- I, th- I think the, the maturity of the organisation under the existing regime makes a huge difference as well. It's fair to say we, we've kicked off a few IFBR support projects, and it's become pretty apparent quite early on that the existing regulatory regime is not being complied with to a particularly <laughs> to, 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 to an effective degree. Um, so um, uh, I, I think there is there is a there's, there's, there is a very broad spectrum, and I mean, I mean that's clearly one of the challenges for the FCA in supervising this sector. Uh, three or four thousand firms that with, as Con says, very different business models, very different levels of sophistication. Um, I can see why having a standardised set of credential rules makes sense in terms of making it somewhat easier to to, to, to supervise those groups of firms. But um, they're still going to have to cope with a lot of variation um, within the sector.
0: Do you think the firms will be ready with the deadline coming in, in 1st of January 2022? Uh, For the most part, I guess.
2: Uh, yeah i mean i'm sure everyone will submit numbers in april 2022 whether whether those numbers are right or not is, is a different question uh, you know inevitably and we've we, we've been through this cycle before our new set of prudential rules there's going to be a multi-year period of the FCA probably finding fault and error in in how firms have Done their calculations and what they've reported so uh, so yeah i'm i'm not expecting widespread non-compliance in, in the sense of, of actually meeting deadlines but i, I imagine we're all going to be on a bit of a learning curve in terms of in terms of how some regulatory interpretations get applied and 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 how, how some of our calculations might need to change over time
0: are we going to see something like with the icap where sometimes <laughs> boards ask what is that and they're probably going to ask what is the icara now
2: uh, probably, I mean, I mean that's a good example where you know uh, the, the, the state of affairs you've described does exist in quite a few investment firms. I.e., the ICAP is a maybe a bit of a box-ticking exercise. Is not, is not, is not truly owned and challenged by the board as as we all know it should be. Um, uh, but for many organisations, more sophisticated organisations, you know, it really is embedded in a in in a, in a much stronger way. So. So the fact that ICAW also needs to be subject to the same kind of challenge and scrutiny by the board and owned by the board is probably going to be an easier step to take for for the mature organisations that are already there with their ICAP.
0: I'm sure it would uh, result in many interesting board discussions as well um, that we will will observe at a later point
2: yes well if, if well if one of the questions is why are we now calling it the icar and not the icap then um i don't have a good answer it just <laughs> i think it's just i think it's just to try and differentiate in some way isn't it it's a rebranding
0: but imagine the speculation at board level as to why that's the case <laughs> and they would probably think there is a logic behind it
2: <laughs> yeah I, yes good luck with that
0: <laughs> okay well that's getting a bit too serious now and much into detail i reckon so i'll just try and break the conversation and ask Come. Who was your favorite celebrity that you served while working at the golf resort and why? Is there a story there?
1: <laughs> uh, I think it was probably, so I was there during the, the Ryder Cup, so it was the, the K Club in Ireland, so we had the Ryder Cup in 2006 uh, 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 and I got the, the lucky position of, I was in the European uh, team lounge. Which is where the the after party broke out because obviously we romped home. So I think literally the one that stood out from the crowd was Michael Jordan uh, was somewhere out there where you just looked out and hundreds of people and he literally a foot above everybody else was just him hovering around the room. So that that was a pretty cool one.
0: I quite like to see how I look like next to Michael Jordan. I'm like 5.3 feet or something like that. So
1: <laughs> yeah, it's one thing seeing him beside uh, basketball players normally on TV. Then when you see him beside mere mortals, it's like ridiculous. Oh uh,
0: yeah, that sounds like a really good fun. And um, OK, uh, I guess going back to the conversation and RFPR Um, um Korn, pr- from your point of view and obviously where you sit in, in the regulatory um, Part, if you like, of your business. Which parts of the regime do you think firms and and your peers are perhaps finding the most challenging to deal with?
1: I think really the big one is data, and um, in particular, in particular, unpicking the K factors and and determining exactly w- what inputs were, were needed like even taking a simple one like uh, assets under management for example you would think that's quite a simple metric for for an asset manager something we should we should be uh well comfortable with but a AUM can often be one of those if you if you ask four different people within the business you'll get four different numbers especially when it comes to defining well especially when it comes to aggregating it up to a legal entity view and uh, which legal entity owns what, what products are actually in scope and kind of unpicking all of that. So it was a lot of breaking it down to the to the source systems and kind of uh, unpicking exactly which which products should be in, which products should be out. And uh, we kind of had to move away from we couldn't just take the AUM numbers we already kind of had in our finance systems because our definition wasn't a match to the regulatory definition so it was it was kind of unpairing that and and kind of building it back up from scratch so that, so that was it, a challenge as well as a similar journey for the for the other K factors really trying to uh, make sure we, we were understanding what was meant by, by the definition and then getting the data around it and then I think probably Another issue is one David has mentioned, uh, one that's kind of been emerging in the last uh, 12 months or so, and that's with the divergence between the European regime and the UK regime. So obviously we have we have presence in both, both the UK and Europe. So um, in some respects, we've kind of begun having to split the project in two uh, with, with um, some subtle but kind of key differences things even AUM being, being an example there, there's a difference in how Europe has defined it they're going for kind of a gross assets under management which has been an absolute dead data pain uh, whereas the FCA has gone for a, a little bit more um a simple definition that's probably more akin to how we would normally define it so they've gotten more net assets uh, net asset value type definition so um that's another thing that's just given a little bit more complexity to the project of running two regimes concurrently
0: yeah sounds sounds like the more um international you are like a business the more challenges you would encounter normally say i guess david from from our clients point of view and what we see on the market are you finding that there are any parts of the regime that are more difficult for them to deal with or to understand and and respectively to implement for another for one or another reason
2: well the the number one is is cobs already covered it I, I mean it is the k factors and and i mean the, the, the as as you say uh Colm, the, the things like aum uh, you know these, these are measures that we've thrown around for years often for pr purposes and suddenly and suddenly it has to be a robust enough number that you know i mean if you, if you if you take that number and and then report your capital based on it and that's wrong um it's a regulatory breach. you know we we know the the, the, the FCA are very sensitive about it errors in regulatory uh, reporting, prudential reporting. Um, so, so even beyond just defining, and uh, making sure you've got the right the right number, it's, it's having a, a robust enough set of controls around it to be able to know that it's right and 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 you know sufficient for purpose. I.e., not just the marketing, but for for actually producing a capital number. So, so that's 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 the number one challenge by a mile. Um, I mean, I think I mean I think there are, there are challenges that. Um, are, are big challenges but for most firms I haven't really got there yet like it's, as the ICAR I'll go back to that I mean I, it, it's superficially similar to use the FTA's own phrase but there's a there's a lot of detail that is that is that is different um, and uh, I, I my estimate I actually differs both in the document the type of analysis actually some of that will have to flow back into risk frameworks in order that you can Tag particular risks in certain, in a, in the right ways so that they then flow through to your calculations correctly. Um, I, I'm, I'm my my best guess at the moment is that doing the first ICar will be two to three times the effort of just updating your ICap, certainly in year one. Um, and uh, and us, you know, I think that is going to end up being a significant, <laughs> a significant uh, burden, a significant challenge. We just haven't got there yet. I think. Um, I suppose I just wanted with with reflecting on though, I guess, in terms of technical challenge. Um, Affects some some groups more than others. Is, is the is the concept of potential consolidation? It's not a new concept in terms of pr- legacy regimes, um, but nevertheless, uh, particularly going in Brexit and the sort of the, the idea of a UK group rather than an EU group. It, there are there are challenges in the new regime that firms are struggling with, and and, and some of it's quite straightforward. You know, parent subsidiary, you've got a group boom, you know that's not that complex. Um, but there are there are you know, there are, there's allowance for connected undertakings, which are things that are not covered in the parent subsidiary relationship, but are very broadly subjectively almost being managed as if they were in the same group. Thus, they might need to be treated in in uh, together with prudential consolidation. There's there's um outside of the UK subsidiaries, if they are similar to what would be a MIFID firm in the UK, they need to be included. I guess there's there's just there's just areas where. It's not necessarily black and white. There's there's going to there is uh, the potential for debate about what should be included and what shouldn't. And, it, and it's certainly true that the new regime imposes requirements not just on MiFID firms, but on the group in which they sit, including potentially some of the unregulated firms within that group. So you need to get that group definition group definition right. Um, and then there is uh, you know something called the group capital test, which is a, which is a new mechanism that firms can. In theory, used to reduce the impact of prudential consolidation. There's a debate, debate there probably about how, how beneficial it is relative to not using it. But but there's a, there's, a, there's a secondary mechanism that, you, that firms can use. But again, um, you know, it, it hinges on things like if your group it, definitions like if your group is sufficiently simple, or, you know, or, or poses a, doesn't pose significant risk. You know, these these are inherently qualitative concepts, which I think is going to take a while for the industry to. Probably through iterative feedback loops from the FCA, I found to see what some of these some of these subjective um, uh, tests mean in practice. I don't know, whether, come whether you would echo any of that from a Prudential Consolidation point of view.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I would. I think, yeah, the Prudential Consolidation one was uh, still it's probably. Thought early on in the regime that the it was drifting towards following quite quite similar to the old one, but I think it was something from the the most recent FCA paper, uh, specifically on the Icar. There seems to be um, a move towards more doing it on a on a MIFID pro, pro level rather than consolidation group, which. Um, in some ways, it probably does make sense because we'd seen more and more tension in the la- in the last few years with heightened expectations coming from, say, the SMC or uh, regime around, uh, which was takes a very legal entity view on what the what the responsibilities of uh, directors and so forth is. And that could sometimes even conflict a little bit with um, th- those that were sitting on the consolidated group. And um, so it probably simplifies it a lot more in that uh, those regimes will, will both be having the, the main focus um on the on the same legal entity view uh, it seems in, in the pillar two space yeah unless you opt to do uh, they they've left in the option to do it on a consolidated group as well which which will be helpful in some circumstances yeah
2: well. i'd be interested to see how that they, how yeah it'd be, and again you like although although it, it you know in some respects making options like that available, because most, most groups subject to prudential consolidation currently will be doing you know ICAPs at a consolidated level, have to do it at that level, um, will have got their risk frameworks and their ICAP processes uh, aligned to do that. You, you're right, the latest consultation paper implies that firms well, certainly have the option to produce their ICAR at a, 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 the, the solo entity level rather than at a consolidation group level. Um, uh, does, does that mean the regulator doesn't have a preference? I mean, I, I, I don't know. What I, said. <laughs> I just uh, was, you know. Do you put do do you put put a mechanism in place to produce all these at solo entity level, and then potentially two or three years down the track, you're getting a steer from the regulator that you should be doing it at consolidation group level? I think it's I think it's, it's, just, a, it's just there is a it, 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 it is there still remains some uncertainty about how things will play out. I think.
0: Yeah, I think we'll go to the FCA consultation paper or the latest one in a second, but just before we get into that, David, can you just elaborate a little bit more on how the group capital test is applied just for firms from a practical point of view, so it to be really helpful to them?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, basically basically, um, the prudential consolidation rules uh, uh, mean that capital adequacy will need to be calculated under the regulate using the regulatory capital rules we've been talking about at at, at the level of the consolidation group. So it's a holding company and and any any company companies that that form part of that consolidation group. Um, So you you would be doing essentially a full accounting consolidation to work out how much capital, actual capital is sitting in that business. You'd then be doing the regulatory capital calculations. I um, won't go into all the details of the detail about some somehow working work in a consolidated situation, but you'd have to do all the, the, the capital calculations at a, at, a, at a group level, building up from the solo level to work out whether the group as a whole is um, is uh, has enough capital to make its capital requirement. So in other words, you could have, the scenario exists um, where you could have uh, individual MIFI pre firms in your group, all of which have sufficient capital, but when you consolidate them up, particularly as you knock out intangibles and things like that, suddenly the group as a whole is insolvent in terms of regulatory capital purposes. So so, um, so it's an important test. Um, G- the GCT, Group Capital, just basically uh, uh, gets you off the hook for doing that full consolidation. There's, there's still some... Book value tests around having enough capital in the whole code, but you, you're not you're not calculating your capital requirement on a fully consolidated basis. So I, I mean, at the very, at the very least, it, well, it, should, it should reduce the capital you need to hold at the, the whole code level. But but at the very least, it simplifies your process immensely because you're not having to do the crank the numbers in the same what in the same way.
0: So we're expecting that firms are going to make use of that test, certainly.
2: It's quite, quite a few firms have been very interested in it. I, I mean, I think I, I think probably after the most recent consultation paper, their enthusiasm may be <laughs> falling away a bit. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it has to be approved by the FCA, so there's a, there's a process for applying for it. Um, uh, although you would be allowed to use the GCT, you know, whilst you um, uh, until the FCA makes a determination on your, your application. Uh, but as I say, since the application is based on concepts of simplicity and risk that are quite hard to define, um, it, it's hard to tell. How the FCA will ju- make judgments on those. So, so, I've, got, so I've got some clients, quite large and sophisticated clients, to be quite honest, who are going to apply to the FCA to use the GCT just to find out whether they can actually just to just to, just, to, just to, is, is it is it is what are the limits of those subjective parameters?
0: Yeah, it would be interesting space to certainly watch. Um, you both mentioned the, the latest FCA consultation paper as certainly moved from what the, the previous one was. Did you did you encounter any surprises in how the FCA's thinking has evolved um since since the first one? And in general, are you are you finding the logic and the rationale behind the direction of travel now with the second consultation paper. Colm, I guess maybe just starting with you
1: yeah i think um one of the main main things was probably um given the timeline of it so the fca have pushed back their uh their implementation by six months so what in reality that meant is europe put out what they were going to do first and then it was kind of left to the fca are they going to follow the same route or where they where are they going to differ um and they they seem to be not afraid of, of of taking the latter route and um di- differed on some, some key points. Um I mentioned the AUM one. They they also um helpfully in the the liquidity space um Europe kind of pushes you down if you're holding money uh some of your cash in money market funds, you effectively have to do the LCR calculation for banks, which is reasonably complex if you haven't done it before. Um Whereas the, the FCA have more gone for the route of, well, you can include it, but then you just need to think about it in the Pillar 2 space rather than using banking type rules. You need to challenge yourself under under the Pillar 2 and kind of say, well, could we fully access it in times of stress, which I think is is quite a, a sensible manner. So that's that's something that, that was welcome. And then I think in, another interesting one uh, versus probably the early discussion paper was, originally had indicated that it would just be they kind of formulaically bring over existing uh, icg scalars from the from the old regime and just lift that across uh, into the new regime but it seems in the in the latest consultation paper they've kind of done away with that and instead invited everyone with existing icgs to to come and approach them so in one sense that's that's good to be able to go have an open discussion with them Um, but you would think that's going to be quite a resource challenge for for them given it's we're, we're now six months out if hundreds of firms are going to be approaching them at once so you would have that slight worry in the back of your mind is well is the only way to to deal with that volume of requests is to kind of revert to having a formula and now it will be one that just isn't published mm-hmm. um, and could have just be a slide away from transparency and it'll still almost be a default way We we're hoping it'll be kind of the former and it will be an open discussion and it and some back and forth as to what, what makes most sense and um, taking that forward into the new regime
0: would you agree with that david
2: uh, yeah it's it's, it's fascinating I mean, it comes absolutely right that that's that surprised me just because i thought you know having so they said the original discussion paper we're scrolling back um 18 months or so on this, covered in quite some detail, a transitional mechanism to to convert your existing regulator imposed capital guidance in, into a new number. Yeah, so 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 you could you could maintain that 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 guidance uh, under the new regime, um, uh, and it's very formulaic and uh, uh, very certain. Um, and and now we have this uncertainty about these individual conversations. Are, I mean, I've, I've got quite a few clients and, and you can understand this, you know, they, they they got their capital guidance 2016, you know, four or five years ago. And they think, right, great opportunity. We're going to have these conversations. They're going to get the FCA to fundamentally rebase our, you know, hopefully fundamentally rebase the view of how much capital uh, we need to hold under these under these gui- individual guidances. Um I, I, I just, that's not going to be possible, is that? I mean, uh, you know, the whole, the SHREP process exists for a reason the fca from an internal governance point of view i don't think can be materially changing firms capital guidance without a substantial internal process so yeah i i just find it fascinating i i love to see how it plays out i, I strongly suspect comms right that the formula we've already seen or something very close to it will end up being uh the mechanism that, that the fca uses uh even if it's not uh formally acknowledged as such we shall see um, I mean, I think I I'll throw in. I mean, just it's a small. I, I think it's, it's the, the FCA, and this is a, probably a post-Brexit thing as much as anything. Has has shown a, a, a decent degree of willingness to, to approach things in a different way. And in fact, if you if you go back and read the original discussion paper, which was a pretty substantial document talking about how they were going to implement the investment firms directive and, uh, and regulation the EU rules, um, there's quite a big chunks of it that you can now throw out essentially. <laughs> Given the consultation paper, so so it's, it's been quite interesting to see how much the FCA's thinking has moved in a few hours. And just as an example, actually, the discussion paper makes it pretty clear, or seems to to me, that the remuneration code, uh, you know, we, we've got it's not a high priority area. Existing remuneration codes, but by proof firms and if proof firms will will remain in force until some unspecified future period when we'll consult on a new remuneration code fine except the second consultation paper lands on this massive consultation on a new set of a r- new rumination code so um so not 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 a night and day different one to the existing one but um yeah it's just interesting for me that um somewhere along the way they the, the decision has been made that they will they will do the rumination work now rather than later
0: entertain us david with your military uh, <coughs> history hat how would you describe the fca's approach with this second consultation paper in military Tactics terms.
2: Uh, well, no, but isn't this whole thing? I mean, this this whole thing is 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 like the the, 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 the time honoured and ancient uh, process of standardisation. And, and well, you know, it's, it's, it's no different from sort of Greek hoplite warfare, or you know, the early medieval uh, firearms drills of the of the of the, of the of the of the of the armies of the Netherlands. Yeah, you st- you standardise um and you create resilience to threats and risks by standardizing there yeah, that's a kind of technical sounding way of describing it isn't it i mean the, uh because everyone everyone does the same thing and reacts it reacts the same way to a particular set of external threats um i mean the and you can understand for the fca trying to supervise many many thousands of organizations why that would be appealing as well i mean the uh, the, the classic challenge of historical challenge to, to standardization is Uh, at some point a completely unforeseen development occurs and the the old model you had falls over entirely you know the the whole the the whole system collapses potentially um uh I, i think the fca is trying to address that though by by giving themselves more flexibility than they've ever had before to sort of impose or direct the holding of capital and liquidity buffers and requirements and and, and the like, so so they got they got more flexibility to to be agile. I guess is the word I'd use in, in 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 changing firms' capital requirements.
0: Thank you for that. And I guess the last question, because then I know marketing are going to be after me. <laughs> um, clearly, the, the the regime introduces some <coughs> fundamental changes. So I guess the question to both of you in in years to come, would the market think this was a <coughs> change? A good regime, in your view?
1: Um uh, I hope so. Um, I think f- for some of the things like it no longer being kind of banking uh, banking calculations we need to do to to an asset manager, that should make it a lot simpler. But I think the real the real proof will come from uh, when we start to see FCAs doing their first kind of Shrefs under the new world, and that's that'll be the real asset test of. Will they just continue to kind of have large multiples on on what your base calculation is, and then ultimately not much will have changed because you end up with the with the same capital number, just a slightly different path in getting there. Um, so I think those early shreps and the and the early findings from from the industries and the, those experiences will really be the um, the the key sign of of the changes. David. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, it will it will be
2: a few years before we get a real sense of what this means. I mean, I think my, I think my, I I think my overriding thought at this point is it feels like a big change because we've been doing something different for years. But but probably in five years' time, we'll think it's actually pretty sensible actually. And and if we've been if we've been doing this from the outset, you know, 2007 onwards, then um, it, it would just seem sensible. seem sensible. Um, I think it does. It does take out some of the gaming and the system that's possible now you know your firms with different relatively similar business models but different being captured by different parts of the regulatory regime by birth birth, exempt cad etc and um and and ending up with quite difficult regular different capital positions as a result so i think it's that that's taking that gaming aspect out is is probably a sensible one i think um Level playing field, yeah. I, I, I clearly uh, there are some firms, and I think the exempt CAD firms are, are the headlines here, um, where that level playing field may well be at a height which they are significantly un- underneath, um, and that could be sort of business model fatal in some cases. So, um, but yes, time will tell.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you very much both for for really a fascinating discussion. It certainly has been very interesting to me, hopefully for, for our listeners as well. I'll just make a very quick re- recap. So the new IPR regime is coming into force on 1st of January 2022 for MIFID firms. Uh, some key changes that David mentioned at the very beginning are those with how the key factors are uh, calculated, which require to generate the, to generate the capital requirements. There are new mandatory liquidity requirements, um, and there will be also need for firms to do a self-assessment for capital and liquidity resources. There won't be any more ICAP, but now will be the ICARA. The market has been um, generally positive uh, with the proposed changes we, we heard from Com. Uh, And of course, firms are at a different stage of readiness depending on their size and sophistication and that some of the main challenges refer to uh, firms getting to grips with the defining the key factors and interpreting those. Um, Certainly some of the firms will try and benefit from the group capital test we heard and we all think that is going to be certainly a good change in hopefully in years to come. Is that a fair summary?
2: It is. Thank you Irina.
0: That's okay. Um, thank you very much uh, again. And uh, it's been absolutely a pleasure to, to have you today. And I guess, thank you all to our listeners um, today. To leave you with some more regulatory food for thought, we have recently published our Financial Services Regulatory Handbook twenty one twenty two, your one-stop shop for all key regulatory developments in the year ahead. You can also sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back with our next episode next month to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye.